There are a number of struggles or sins that we all face that are less obvious or perhaps even seemingly invisible to those around us. And yet at the same time, they are tremendously powerful and damaging to us and to our relationships and to our view of God as well. And one that we're going to be able to see today is so dangerous because it is so subtle, so invisible, and also so very common. One author in writing of it says this, it is one of the most miserable vices. Most other vices tend to produce some kind of pleasure, however momentary. But this one is nothing but unpleasant through and through. It is a constant thief of joy. There is no joy in your life that cannot be destroyed by it. What is this subtle, invisible, joy-destroying sin? It is the sin of envy. And this particular form of pride so easily saps our joy, undermines our relationships with other people, and often deeply impacts the health of our relationship with God. This morning in our passage, we'll see the danger of this, but also the better way that's available through Jesus Christ. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 20. Today we're in Matthew 20, and you find it on page 825 in the Bibles we provided near you, page 825. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you today. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we'll be in chapter 20. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We'll start in verse 1, and we'll work our way through verse 16. And if you don't own, own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table. There's a stack of Bibles that are free back there, a sign that says free. So please, following the service, grab one of those Bibles. Take it with you as our gift to you today. So today we're continuing our series, walking through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 20, beginning in verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour. You have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing no wrong. 
Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. This morning in our passage, we'll see this emphasis. Trust your gracious God and treasure his extraordinary grace to you. Trust your gracious God and treasure his extraordinary grace to you. Now, when we read the Bible, it's always important that we hold the context of a passage in mind in order to rightly understand and interpret it. Now, the parable that Jesus gives us, if we just lifted it out of context without mindful of what came before it or what came after it, it would be very difficult to in- interpret it, first of all, well, and be very easy to make it say whatever you would want it to say. But if, as we read this text, we pay close attention to the context, it will help us to understand it. The chapter headings that we have in our Bible, in this case, chapter 20, are are helpful tools, but they're added later on. So they're not in the original Greek of this. And so they're helpful so that we can, you know, tell one another where we are, we can point to these headings, but sometimes they're unhelpful because we can easily think a new chapter always means a new thought disconnected from the previous chapter. So we see chapter 20, so we immediately think, oh, this is a new thought from chapter 19, except that's not the case, particularly in our passage today. And if we look closely, we'll see that chapter 20 follows immediately after what we've seen taught at the end of chapter 19. So in order to think well, let's remind ourselves of the context at the end of chapter 19 that we saw last week. We saw these parents who were bringing their children to Jesus, wanting Jesus to pray for them and to bless them. The disciples of Jesus had sought to to send the people away, but Jesus said, no, let them come to me. And Jesus said this, for my kingdom belongs to such as these. Not meaning that all children are automatically in the kingdom of Jesus, but but those who come into the kingdom of Jesus are like children, meaning with a childlike humility, a childlike faith. And then a rich young man had come to Jesus, asking Jesus how this young man might have eternal life. How would he obtain this life eternal? And they had this conversation. This young man asked about keeping commandments. And and it became clear this young man was a very upright, moral person. But eventually Jesus discerned the man's heart and understood that, that his trust was in his wealth, in his riches. So Jesus called the man to come and follow him, but first to go and sell all that he had. But that's what it would take for him to truly follow Jesus. But sadly, the young man had, had walked away. Sorrowful because he was so wealthy. Following that, then Jesus taught this very important lesson that he said, how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he portrays it as impossible. And he says it is impossible, except nothing is impossible for God. It's impossible for humans, but not impossible for God. In response to that, one of the Jesus' disciples, Peter, said to Jesus, look, we've, we've left everything to follow you. We've left family, we've left homes. So unlike the rich young man, we did leave much. So what about us? We who've left so much. And, and Jesus answered with this assurance that, that for them and for all who leave for the sake of the kingdom, that, that Jesus would give to them in this life, family, possessions, and he would give to them life eternal. And then Jesus concluded 
in chapter 19, verse 30. Look at chapter 19, verse 30. So this was the last verse we saw last week. Jesus said this, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Then look at our last verse today, chapter 20, verse 16. Jesus said, so the last will be first and the first last. So here we see our passage bookended by the same thought. So that helps us to see that whatever Jesus is saying in chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, is intended to help us understand and help us trust God as he carries this out, as in his kingdom, the first are last, and the last are first. Now, during Jesus' ministry, he he regularly used parables to teach. And often when a parable is told, there would be a twist or a surprise in the parable. And the twist or the surprise, what was sort of the the flag that says, this is really important. When the story changes from what we might expect it to be, that's likely the point Jesus is making in the parable. Sometimes when Jesus would teach a parable, we see that afterwards he would explain it to his disciples and therefore explain it to us as well. He doesn't do that in our parable today, but he does give us a hint in verse 1. Look down at verse 1. Jesus helps us when he says this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers in the vineyard. So here at the outset, Jesus tells us this is the focus. The master in the story is the focus we must pay close attention to, and he is going to show us what the kingdom of heaven is like. So as we walk through the story, we pay particular attention to the master of the house, Understand that he represents God's kingdom, and in fact, he represents what our heavenly Father is like. So the story we read, we saw that there was this master of a house who owned a vineyard. A vineyard was a familiar image in the world of that day, and a familiar one for God's people, for God's people were referred to as a vineyard in the Old Testament. And so this master of the house went out early in the morning to hire some laborers. This often happened. You could go to the town square. There would be many, many, many day laborers there waiting, and you would hire them for the day. And they would come and wait and serve and work with you, and then you would pay them at the end of the day. Now, in this story, we'll notice that the, the master of the house was wealthy enough to hire quite a few workers... And he has a foreman that we see later in the story. But for some reason, the master of the house didn't send his foreman to make the hires, but he went himself. And so he went out there, and there we see he early in the morning hired some, and he agreed to them a wage of a denarius a day. And that, in the culture of that day, was a, basically a, an average day's wages. So he made an agreement with them. You'll work a day. I'll pay you a day. It was a fair agreement they made. And so he sends them into the vineyard. But then we see in the story that a few hours later, so that was like at 6 a.m., at the third hour, at 9 a.m., he's back in the marketplace. He sees some who are not working, and he hires them. They don't agree on a certain price, but he says, whatever is right, I will give to you. And then he goes back at the sixth hour, which is noon. Goes back at the ninth hour. 3 p.m., again, doing the same thing, hiring them, sending them into the vineyard. And then at the 11th hour, 5 p.m., at the end of the day, one more hour before the day is over, he does the same. It seems pretty unusual that he keeps going back and hiring. That, That seems odd why he didn't just hire the right number at the beginning. 
But what's really surprising is why hire anyone when there's only an hour left in the day? It doesn't make sense. It's surprising. And so that should draw our attention because of how unique it seems to be. And then at the end of the day, the owner gave instructions for the foreman. He told the foreman, call the workers in, pay them their wages, but do it the last workers pay them first. So the ones who get in the 11th hour pay them first and then work back to the workers who started the day with us. That's what he did. Now, the ones who worked only one hour, they came to receive their wages. And what did they receive? We see in the text, they received a denarius, a whole day's wages for one hour. And you can imagine they thought, now we hit the jackpot. I mean, we, we didn't have to work all day. We worked one hour and we got paid like we worked the whole day. I mean, you've had an, an hourly job. You can imagine like, wow, this is a great day to be paid in this way. Apparently, he works his way through the workers. We're not told of the response of the ones in the middle until we come to the ones who had started the day. The ones hired at the beginning, early in the morning. You can imagine they're watching what's going on. And they're probably thinking, those guys worked one hour, got a day's wage. If we worked all day, maybe we're getting 12 days wages. I mean, at least six days wages in comparison to what they did. But what did they get? Only a denarius. They received the exact same. And when they received it, we see in the text, they grumbled at the master of the house. They said, these last worked only one hour and you've made them equal, equal with us? I mean, it's a reasonable question they ask, isn't it? And as you listen to the story, you likely thought the same thing. How is that fair to those workers who worked all day? Perhaps some of you law school students, in your mind, you're turning through labor law. Is there a suit here? You could come along and, and help them sue. But the master responds, notice what he says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? And that was the agreement they had made. And he satisfied the agreement. He did exactly what he had said he would do. The master reminds the workers, and he reminds us that, in fact, he was not unjust. He didn't break his agreement. Then why did this bother them so much? Why did their payment, at the end of the day, of what they'd actually agreed to, bother them so much? And if we're honest, why does it bother us so much? Because I think most of us, when we hear this, we're like, that just doesn't seem right. There's something about that that just doesn't seem fair. Now, a few of you may be aligning yourself with the 11th hour workers. Like, hey, man, that, that, those are the ones. Follow those guys. But for most of us, there's something that just doesn't seem right. There's, there's this sort of sense of fairness I think we have inside. It shows up in a variety of areas of life. If you have siblings, fairness is a term we often use. Something happens to your siblings, you say, that, that's unfair. Uh, I'm a younger sibling. I think many younger siblings find that our older siblings think we have it easier. Like it's unfair how mom and dad treat you, the younger siblings, but we younger siblings know that's not the case. We were just better kids than they were, right? That, that's why we got it better. But there's some sort of meter inside that we say that just isn't fair. It's just not right. So what does this mean? What is Jesus teaching us here? 
As Jesus said in verse 1, it's intended to help us understand more of what our heavenly Father is like and what his kingdom is like. And this kingdom is real and present now, though invisible. And one day, this kingdom will be fully realized. Now, this lesson is not intended to instruct us on fair labor practices, although Christians certainly should oppose injustice. And importantly, this is not aimed at sort of picturing us somehow working for salvation. Jesus is clear, the New Testament is clear, that we cannot, we must not try to earn salvation. We never could earn it. So that's not what he's saying. We know that as well. So today we want to see several realities from our text for living in the kingdom of God. First, we want to notice this, the difference of the kingdom. The difference of the kingdom. We, we see throughout the scripture that as long as we're following Jesus, we'll have to continually reorient our minds around what his kingdom is like because his kingdom is so different from every other society, every culture. And every Christian of all time have lived in the midst of societies and cultures that in a variety of ways are, are pushing us away from the way of his kingdom. So we continually have to, to think through what is Jesus' kingdom like, and it is so different, so foreign from what we might imagine it would be like. For in his kingdom, as we've seen, childlikeness is the way. A childlike faith, a childlike humility. In his kingdom, wealth and possessions don't, don't merit position or power. In fact, wealth and possessions can be a significant danger to us. Now this parable today is bookended, as I mentioned, with the last will be first, and the first last. So in Jesus' kingdom, there is this reversal. Those in the world who are first. So in the world of Jesus' day, religious authorities who had power, but were opposed to Jesus. The rich young man we saw last week who had wealth, but refused Jesus. They, if they continued on that path, though first in the world of that day, would be last. And those who trust in Jesus, who are last in the world, the least, the most vulnerable, the poorest, those who trust in Christ with this childlikeness, they will be made first, brought into the kingdom. So this then shapes our outlook in the world, and we'll see more of this next week of how it is we live in light of this. And in this upside-down kingdom of Jesus, grace is at the center. Jesus' kingdom is marked by grace. Which leads us to the second reality we want to notice, and that is this, the pursuit of the Father. In the passage, we see the master or the landowner. And as I mentioned, it's interesting that he didn't send his foreigner to go hire the worker. I mean, his, his, his foreman to go hire the workers. Instead, he went himself. Why would the master do that? Why would he go and pursue these workers? Friends, because that is what our heavenly Father is like. He is no distant God. In fact, he is a, a gracious, pursuing God. And the pinnacle of the plan of the pursuit is our Heavenly Father sending forth Jesus Christ, the Son, who came near, taking on flesh, in order that through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, he might provide the ultimate gift of salvation. Friend, what a gloriously gracious God we have. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we hope that we'll see that the God we speak of, 
is not some distant God. Not demanding that you climb towards him through your good deeds, nor through your religious devotion. That's what many people perceive Christianity to be about, and that's what many world religions teach. But Christianity says, no, in fact, you, you can't, you won't, none of us could or would climb our way to God. Instead of being a distant God, he's this gracious, pursuing God who came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Friend, if you are a Christian, never lose sight of the great links that Christ went to for you. Pursuing you to rescue you. A third reality we notice is this, and that is that justice that's essential. We see the justice that's essential. Because we're all, all humans are created in the image of God, we all have a conscience within. Now, all things have been marred by sin, including our conscience, but it remains, and it's a helpful tool for us, although it's not perfect. And so at times when our conscience alarms us to things, appropriately so. So, so most of us, when we see enduring injustice, there's something inside that says, that's not right. There should be justice there. Or we may see someone in this life who, who seems to get away with all sorts of horrific practices and crimes, and as best we can tell, they die in this life without facing any kind of punishment for it. And inside we say, that just doesn't seem right. That seems to be unjust. That's a right since we have. Our conscience is working. And so we hear this story, and initially we think it's injustice that was done to the first workers, but as I mentioned, it was not. The first workers got what they deserved, what they earned. They experienced justice. And friends, across the scriptures, we see that all people, including us, are sinners, rebels. We've all gone our own way. And simultaneously, God is perfectly just and righteous. And there is a coming day of judgment where all will face judgment for how we have lived in this world. And, and because of our rebellion, all of us are, are rebels who've gone our own way. All of us deserve the judgment of God, a real weighty punishment eternal separation from God in this judgment. All will face that unless, unless we turn to Christ by faith. And in so doing, instead of facing justice ourselves, we're credited with Christ's death on the cross where he took the justice we deserve in our place. For Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He goes to the cross and there he pays the penalty that I deserve, that you deserve. He endured that so that we could be pardoned of our unjust living, of our sinful living. Not only that, so that his righteousness would be credited to us in this stunning reversal. We made righteous instead of facing the justice we deserve. And friends, from this comes deliverance from justice. As friends, as Christians, we understand there is justice to come. So if you're not a Christian, we just want to urge you it's a heavy, weighty topic. But as we want to urge you, there, there is hope in the face of justice, and that's found in Jesus Christ. This is new to you, friend. We'd love to tell you more. 
You can note that on your Connect card. I'll be the door on the way out. Or if you came with a friend or family member, if they're a Christian, they would love to tell you more as well. Then we see a fourth reality, and that is this. We see the gifts from our gracious God. The gifts from our gracious God, the salvation that I mentioned, is provided as a gift. It is the most costly of gifts purchased through the sacrificial death of Christ, but it is only a gift. It must be received as a gift. We do not, we cannot earn it. It can only be received by faith as a gift. And friends, in this gift of salvation, we inherit, as we saw last week in chapter 19, verse 29, we inherit eternal life. That means multiple things. One, we're, we're brought in through Christ, adopted as a child of God, God as Father. We're described as a co-heir, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. We inherit life now and eternal life to come. And with this comes countless other gifts of grace, the forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God. We're a new creation. We have been changed. We are being changed. We're brought into the mission of Jesus here and now in the world, which can bring meaning to every day of our lives. Now, some of these gracious gifts are future-oriented. They are not yet. And then many of them are partially now and will be experienced in full in the future. So these are gifts given to all who trust in Christ. Every Christian receives those gifts. But in addition to the gifts of salvation, God also gives other gifts, the gifts that are different, more personal. We saw last week in 1929, as Peter had asked, what about us? We've left everything. Jesus had assured him, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So here's this promise. It's a picture that for all those who leave relationships, who set aside possessions for the sake of the mission of Jesus, Jesus will give them what they've given up in this life and more. But it's different based upon person to person, uniquely experienced by individuals and families. And in many other areas of life, God gives gifts, but they're different from person to person. So we have various talents, different from one another. A different family that you were brought up in. Different capacities, various areas of life. Different opportunities that we may experience in this life. If it's in light of this, we must always be mindful of the fact that God gives these gifts of grace freely as he chooses. God gives these gifts freely as he chooses. The landowner says it this way. Look at verse 15. He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And friends, so it is with God as well. The God who gives the gifts of grace is sovereign over all. He's all-knowing, and his ways are often mysterious from our vantage point in life. So one person receives greater talents. This person receives opportunities, and the one next to him does not. And in the face of this, we face a tremendously important question. Will we trust that God is free and able to give gifts to you and to others 
as he sovereignly chooses. Will you trust that God is free and able to give gifts to you and to others as he sovereignly chooses? Will we trust our gracious God in this? And especially, will we trust God in this when the gifts that he gives to others seem to be honestly more substantial than the gifts he's giving to us? That then brings us to a dangerous temptation, an attempting alternative, and that is this, envying the gifts of others and grumbling at God. Envying the gifts of others and grumbling at God. We see this attitude in the first group of workers in verse 11 as they grumbled at the master. They grumbled at the master, but what fueled their grumbling was envy at what others had received. It so easily happens for us as well. We can so easily envy others and grumble against God. These two are so closely and deeply intertwined. And remember, why did they grumble? They weren't grumbling primarily that the landowner was unjust because he wasn't. He was fair. He fulfilled the agreement. What they grumbled at is his graciousness to the others. They felt like he gave them too much. They were envious, really. The good deed, good deal they got. Worked one hour for a whole day's wages. We worked the whole hour, the whole day. So they're grumbling at God's, envy, God's grace towards them. For it's how easy it is for us to see what God has given to others and allow envy to grow in our hearts and to grumble against God. As we mentioned, envy is so destructive. It eats away at our well-being. It robs us of joy as we miss what God is doing in our own lives. You've likely seen around Boston the neighborhood gardens. Maybe you've grown one where we have this really small plot in the midst of many other plots. And envy is like you've, you've planted, you've cared for your plot, but you stand at the fence never looking at your own plot. And all you do is look at the surrounding plots and you say, Oh, they've just got much better sunlight over there. Oh, they're closer to the water. They've got that benefit. For some reason, weeds just don't grow over there, so everyone has it better. When the garden behind you is actually flourishing, but all that we're doing is envying, focused on the experiences of others. Often, Envy is strongest with those nearest to us. It's certainly possible for us to envy someone out there, a celebrity, social media influencer, but we really don't typically think we're going to be just like them. Where envy is so devastating is with someone right next to us. So a classmate She just seems to excel in every way more than you. She gains the approval of the instructor. Every accolade seems to come her way instead of to you. A coworker, you desire a promotion and you think you deserve it. You think you're the right person for it. But your close friend, who's the coworker, receives it instead of you. You're a 
a writer, you hang out with a group of writers and you encourage one another, you've written a book, but your close friend, he gets published instead of you. It might be a, a friend, a high school classmate, in the same season of life, and you say their house compared to your house. Their vacations compared to your vacations. Their life compared to your life. And our comparisons fuel our envy. And a steady contributor to this so often can be social media. That we know is so inaccurate. Things always look bigger and better on there than they are in person. So for instance, we obviously have a very small church facility but if you're a good photographer, you could take a photo of the front of our building that would make our building look really large. And you could post it online. Wow, what a massive building. And you say, no, I've been there. It's not. It's really small. But it looks bigger in that image. We see people's happiness, apparent happiness online. And we compare ourselves to that. Several years ago, we were going to take a family picture together. And it was going to be, I think, our Christmas card. And so we scheduled it on a Sunday afternoon, a beautiful fall day, and we took a great picture. Everyone was smiling. Everyone's eyes were opened. It made for a great Christmas card that we happily sent out. I'm sure we posted it on Facebook as well. We looked like the idyllic Greater Boston Fall family. But had you been there, just seconds before that photo, it was sheer chaos. That afternoon, we were coming from two different ways. I was coming from here. Uh, Brandy and the kids were coming from another direction. We were trying to go down to the Esplanade. Parking was a disaster. We we're trying to find our way there. Literally, uh, our kids were like trying to scale a fence to get across the road, to cross, you know, and, and we're dodging, and people are crying, people are yelling. And eventually, we find there, and the photographer, I think, was thinking, like, what have I signed myself up for? We clean ourselves up, we smile, and it's a perfect picture. And had you just been watching social media that day, and maybe you were unhappy with your family, you might have thought, oh, the cooks. They're perfect. Look at them. They're always happy. Look at how they smile. So, friend, if we cause you to envy in that, we're, we apologize because that was completely an inauthentic photo. We were a disaster that day. And, friend, even though we know that, we do know that, don't we? We all fall for that again and again, and we compare ourselves, and envy grows. And this envy robs us of joy. It steals us of the joy for the gifts that we receive, and because of it, we're unable to celebrate the gifts that God gives to others. So friend, I wonder, when you see others receive gifts of God's grace, is your honest response joy for them or jealousy of them. Our response to the grace given to others reveals how deeply the grace of God has impacted our own hearts. So where is envy a temptation for you today? The honest question really isn't, is there envy? But, but where might it be? Is it the success of another? Is it wealth and possessions that, that he has or that she has? 
Could it be the talents of another that just seem to surpass you? It might be that you desire to be married and that just hasn't happened yet. Or it might be that you are married and marriage has been difficult. You find yourself envying these other apparently perfect marriages. It might be the good desire of children, but you don't yet have children. Or it might be that you have children, but you envy other children that just seem to have it together a little bit more than yours. And so many other ways we could all name of where envy is real and powerful. And our envy of others doesn't stop there, but it stirs grumbling in our hearts towards God, who ultimately is the one over all these things and the giver of these gifts. Friend, do you see what's happening in our hearts when we envy and this ungrateful grumbling that follows? Because inside we're wondering, why did God give this to them and not to me? Why did she get that instead of me? And ultimately we begin to doubt God's generosity towards us. But friend, if you're a Christian, is God not worthy of your trust? If he's given his very son for you, if he's adopted you into his eternal family, if he gives to you like all new mercies every morning, if he's given gifts in the past, if he sustains you today, if he's promised eternal joy, then why wouldn't we trust him? Even trust his wisdom in distributing his gifts. So to conclude today, just a few things. What can we do to work against envy and grumbling? If it's there for all of us, myself included, what can we do? So first, friend, pray. Pray that God would help us to know our own hearts, to be able to identify where envy resides, where grumbling has taken hold. And pray also that God would empower you for the fight. That God, would you give me the desire to fight this and the hope that I could actually make progress against it? So pray. Second, spend much more time looking up to our gracious God instead of looking sideways at others. Look up, and by looking up, look back to Christ's cross and his resurrection for you. Look back in your own life of God's past faithfulness and gifts that he's provided. Look up and look ahead to the promises we all share in Christ of this great eternal future. Friend, do that more than you look sideways. Third, you might also find it helpful to maybe share about this struggle with another Christian brother or sister. Maybe just saying like, yeah, this is a real struggle for me. So I want, I'd love for you to pray for me in this. Or if you felt the liberty, maybe to say, would you be willing to ask me in a couple of weeks when you see me how that's going? Because I've really found my joy sapped by envy. And I, I really do want to see some progress in my life. Another helpful practice, friends, is to cultivate thankfulness. Seek to cultivate thankfulness in your life. Author Sam Crabtree wrote a very helpful book called Practicing Thankfulness, and he writes this. Thankfulness liberates from envy. 
It's virtually impossible to be envious and thankful simultaneously. So for notice the gifts in life, big and small. Be thankful to others, of course, but also thankful to God. I would also encourage you, friends, to seek to see and believe that freedom and joy is possible. Instead of the trap of envy, freedom and joy is possible. So we really have these two different ways available to us. The freedom and joy of savoring and celebrating grace in others. Or the joy-stealing prison of envying the grace experienced by others. And friends, because this is God's desire for us to be free of that, it's possible for us to make progress. The Spirit in you, He will help you in this. So, so pursue it with all the strength and diligence that you have, knowing that God Himself will help you. So imagine a future day where a coworker gets a promotion, a promotion you wanted, and you could honestly, authentically celebrate that with them. You would say, Yeah, I did want it, but I'm so thrilled for my friend. What a gift that is to them. Our neighbor has success. And two years ago, you would have envied them, but instead you're thrilled for them. A friend gets the opportunity that you had hoped for. But they could be there where you would have joy on their behalf. Friend, it's possible by God's grace so that the very gifts that previously would have been the source of envy could be the source of our joy. Whereas in the past, the gift was given to him or her, and you think to yourself, look at what he gave to them. But by God's grace, there could be a day where you could say, look what our Father gave to them. I'm so thrilled that God gave that to them. What a kind Heavenly Father we have that gave to my friend this, that gave to my neighbor that. It makes me want to praise God more because of how he gives gifts to them as well as he's given gifts to us. And friend, imagine the opportunity we have through a life that's less trapped by envy to shine the light in our city. In a world that's eaten up by envy, how curious and attractive might it be as we're on campus and in the workplace, in families and in neighborhoods, not that you're perfect, different by God's grace. And through this process of making progress and pursuing trust in Christ, God is glorified in us and we will be more at peace. We'll have greater health and wholeness. And through this life, to point people to the hope that they have in Christ. Friends, the good news is there is a better way available to us. So let's trust our gracious God treasure his extraordinary grace to us.